This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer. Always great to have your company. Today, a preview to our election year. John Hewson and Peter Harcher. That's coming up. Plus, will this be the moment that Venezuelans reclaim their democracy from a repressive socialist regime? Stay with us for that. Well, don't laugh, but it's possible that Labor won't win this year's federal election. Sounds absurd, I know, given that the polls, the press, why? The very scent in the air insists that Bill Shorten is the Prime Minister in waiting. Wherever he travels now, the Labor leader leaves virtually everyone thinking that he now has that glow of imminent power. It's a done deal. And this week's drama in Canberra, when the government lost a historic vote in the Parliament over border protection, that all reaffirms the consensus view that this is indeed the unlosable election. However, the experts might all be wrong. After all, we've been here before. Will you all please welcome John Hewson, Premier, President, Prime Minister-elect. Saturday night he'll be the Prime Minister of Australia, Mr John Hewson. But as the days dwindle to polling day, the rhetoric on both sides is growing more strident. Dr Hewson is the most extreme and radical right-winger to propose himself for the leadership of this country in the country's history. Now that was March 1993, hard to believe more than a quarter of a century ago. The federal opposition was on track to win the unlosable election. This is the contest between John Hewson and Paul Keating. This was during the recession we had to have. Remember that? I sure do. I, for one, was out of a job. And yet, the polls were wrong. Labor, the government at the time, against all the odds, won its fifth election on the trot, and the opposition, the coalition back then, lost the unlosable election. Well, as for the so-called experts, well, they had egg on their faces. No wonder Paul Keating on election night gloated. This is a victory for the true believers. Paul Keating on election night, March 1993. Well, could it happen again? Well, let's ask the man himself, the then opposition leader, John Hewson, the federal liberal leader from 1990 to 94, a distinguished economist and investment banker. John Hewson these days is a professor at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. G'day, John. G'day. Joining John is Peter Harcher, one of our nation's most distinguished uh, journalists and intellectuals. He's the political editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and author of, among other influential books, The Sweet Spot, How Australia Made Its Own Luck and Could Now Throw It All Away. Peter, welcome to the show. Morning, Tom. Thank you. Well, uh, you've been there, done that, John. Could Bill Shorten lose the unlosable election? Well, yes, he could, of course. I mean, I was never confident, and I said that many times in the run-up to that election. I tended not to believe the polls, and our private polling was not so persuasive. But having said that, I mean, uh, the public image was that we would win, and we didn't. It was uh, quite close, and that's where I thought that it would end up. But, uh, you know, you could take nothing for granted in politics, and... um, you know, I, I, I think there are a lot of reasons why I lost. I was fe- relatively new into the game of politics. Uh, I had a broad-based reform agenda in almost every area of public policy, enough to frighten a lot of people, not just the GST. And ironically, I think the GST tended to fade as an issue about 10 days out. And the health scare campaign that was run very effectively in about 13 key marginal seats 
totally dishonest, but it was really effective, and that's where I saw the vote turning. We talk about scare campaigns. Peter, you wrote a very important column about two, three months ago when you observed that the coalition could indeed bounce back from the political doldrums and score an upset victory. Tell us more. Well, the, I, I always think, Tom, that the uh, the first fallacy of any forecasting is is simple extrapolation. That is simply to say that the status quo is going to continue forever. Um, it's a it's a it's an ahistorical way of of looking at things. It's wrong often, more often than not, um, and yet we still have groupthink. And I always like to remember uh, the American general George Patton, who once said, "When everyone's thinking alike, someone's not thinking." Um, so, so you need to you need to challenge uh, the orthodoxy um, on any just about anything, but especially about especially about that tricky thing called forecasting. Um, and I think, I mean, you're talking about the '93 election uh, with John Hewson versus Paul Keating. That's a that's a classic case of the power of a good scare campaign, or should I say, a bad scare campaign. And you don't need to look that far back. You can just look back at the last federal election uh, in 2016 when Malcolm Turnbull came within a few hundred votes of losing a federal election uh, because of a, an entirely confected Labor scare campaign. It was really qu- quite a terrible confection. It was, uh, it was entirely made up, the so-called Medi-Scare campaign, that uh, the Turnbull government was thinking of privatising Medicare. It had no basis to it except the slenderest of, of um, developments, which really was... Um, there was never any substantive, substantive plan to do so at all. But it nearly worked. Uh, Bill Shorten, based on that, saw a very late swing to Labor and came within a hair's breadth and a single seat of winning the election. The scare campaign is unoriginal, it's ugly, but when it's done well, effective. That's Peter Harcher in the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, John Hewson, is Scott Morrison really capable of a successful scare campaign? Well, there's no doubt, uh, if you look at the way he performs, you'll put a lot of passion behind it. Uh, you saw that yesterday in his uh, repositioning of the government post that historic uh, uh, parliamentary loss that you referred to earlier. And he's going to go very hard on border security. Uh, he's, he's ignoring the facts of the legislation. Uh, and, um, you know, he's pulling stunts like reopening uh, Christmas Island and so on. And these are elements of what could be an effective scare campaign. I doubt it will be, but don't doubt that he'll go to this with real passion. And within the coalition, I was speaking to a couple yesterday, particularly say in the National Party, they're quite enthused by the prospect of using that sort of campaign to re-establish their position in the in the, in the contest. So, I, you know, it, there's no doubt they will run it, and they'll run it hard. I think it is a feature, as Peter said, of some of these scare campaigns. They've got nothing to do with reality or fact. <laughs> they, mm. they take an emotive position and they exploit it. Okay, but on the question of border protection, this week's decision, this is the news that Labor, the Greens, the crossbench, they combined to pass laws facilitating uh, the medical transfer of asylum seekers uh, to the mainland for treatment. Peter, uh, how vulnerable is Labor on border protection now? Labor's always vulnerable on border protection, Tom, and that's why uh, every question in question time in the last couple of days from Labor to the government is trying to shift the shift the subject matter. They're trying to change the subject to uh, the Banking Royal Commission because Labor is distinctly uncomfortable on this territory and wants to move away from it. Labor's are vulnerable mainly because of the collective uh, national memory of what happened under the Rudd and Gillard governments when they eased the John Howard policy um, on asylum seekers 
which of course uh, was immediately followed by a huge influx of, of uh, boat people, 50,000 as the government keeps reminding us. And the, uh, if you like, the, the brand um, memory of Labor persists that they're somehow weak on the borders. Now, the particulars of the legislation and the detail of what's actually happened uh, this week in Parliament does not support the government's rhetoric that Labor's thrown the borders open and we're going to see a massive influx of boats. In fact, uh, really um, what Labor has now agreed to is essentially a codification, um, a formalisation, if you like, of what the government's already doing. <clears throat> so, uh, in fact, while the government keeps saying, you know, med easier medical transfers is going to invite an influx of boat people, uh, well, the legislation actually specifies that the easier medical transfers can only apply to people who are already on Manus and Nauru and cannot apply to new arrivals. But the government conveniently overlooks that and just uh, whips up a storm. But it, it doesn't really matter. And uh, whipping up a storm, playing on people's fears and playing on their brand impressions of the other party is a powerful thing all by itself. And it's not just border security, Tom, as you know. Uh, there's a couple of big ones in Labor's economic uh, swag that the government has already started to hammer and will hammer much harder, and that's Labor's proposed changes to negative gearing and Labor's proposed changes to uh, dividend refunds, and that's just to get started. My guests are Peter Harcher from the Sydney Morning Herald and former Federal Liberal leader John Hewson, and we're pondering the prospect of Labor losing the unlosable election. Not bloody likely. <laughs> <laughs> Not according to Seinfeld. Uh, Bill Shorten certainly wants to talk a lot more about banks than boats. Uh, John, we're all talking about the um, the scare campaign tactics here that the coalition is likely to uh, exploit. Uh, but what about accidents of history? Um, I mean, you think about historical precedents here. I think of the Tampa asylum seeker standoff in 2001. Hard to believe now. 17 years ago, 18 years ago now. That helped John Howard exploit the broader protection issue to beat Kim Beasley in another unlosable election. What other kind of accidents of history can you envision over the next uh, few months? Well, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I think one of the, the big sleepers out there is whether there is some significant global financial crisis or trade crisis that is precipitated perhaps by what Trump's done or the, mm -hmm. you know, the mounting volatility and uncertainty in all financial markets, stock markets, bond markets, currency markets. I mean, they're, they're all overvalued. They're way out of line with what people would think are fundamental factors. And in those terms, I mean, as every day goes by, the risk of a significant correction is very real. It's always difficult in economics, you know, to pick the timing and to actually identify what will be the trigger. But the risk is there, and of course, if that were to happen, there were to be a major crisis between now and May, uh, I think uh, Morrison would be in a good position to capitalise on that and say, look, you know, no time to change horses, so let's keep a steady hand on the tiller, and feed into the perception, of course, that they are better economic managers. And the point that's been made a couple of times this morning is that, that per the perceptions that are ingrained you know, in, in the system really do matter. I mean, there's perception that the government is better at border protection than the Labor Party. There's perception that they are better economic managers in the Labor Party, that the Labor Party is better at education and health and some of the women's issues in the, in the coalition. So, you know, these perceptions are there. And if circumstances change to allow them to be elevated as issues, then I think it becomes... Uh, 
anything to me. Okay, so we're talking about scare campaigns, accidents of history, and then there's political volatility of recent times. Peter Harcher, we've had Trump, Brexit, uh, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, Dr Mahathir in Malaysia. (laughs) We've been on top of all of these issues. Why are the polls here apparently more reliable compared with abroad? Or are they? Well, they, they are, and Australia hasn't had any of the big uh, uh, surprises that the polling, particularly in the US and the UK, have set those countries up for. And the core reason is a very simple one, and that is that uh, in Australia we have compulsory voting so that when pollsters sample what people are intending to do with their votes, what they're thinking, um, 95% of the people that they're polling, provided they're adults and enrolled, are going to vote. Uh, So that takes a huge element of the uncertainty out of it, whereas in the US and UK where voting is voluntary, uh, the first thing, you're actually, they're actually testing two propositions. First, how likely are you to vote? And then, who are you going to vote for? And that adds a whole extra uh, layer of unpredictability because people say, yeah, I'm going to vote, Uh, but that's easy to say. And as we know, um, uh, turnout in the US in particular, UK is not great either, but US in, in particular... If you get half the people turning out for a presidential vote, it's, it's pretty good. So um, they've been asking, you know, it's just in, in, an inherently different and more difficult thing to predict, whereas here um, it's a lot easier. The second big factor, I'd say, is that the uh, rise of populist or alternative parties in Australia, although there have been plenty of attempts, mm-hmm. um, has never, ne- never, never really uh, broken through. But, you know, even so, uh, even with all of that, Tom, and while we're talking about polls, uh, and there's this tremendous, as you said at the very outset, there's this tremendous confidence and certainty. Now the government's finished, they're hopeless, it's all over, I'm sick of them, and Labor's got to win. People forget it's only going to take a two or three percentage point shift, and suddenly the government's ahead. I mean, we're talking about a pretty minor and manageable shift in opinion over the course of the next four months. It's entirely within the realm of possibility and, as you say, entirely in the realm of many historical precedents. Peter, John, always great to have you on RN. Thanks very much, Always a pleasure, Tom. Tom. John Hewson is a former federal Liberal leader and Peter Harcher is political editor of the Sydney Morning Herald. You're on RN. Well, you've no doubt been following the crisis in Venezuela, right? The economy is going into a spiral of dysfunctionality. Venezuela has, of today, the highest inflation in the world. Venezuelans today cannot eat. You see people eating from the garbage. Hospitals that have massive deaths of newborns, and, you know, there is no access to medication. A cycle of violence and street protest. That was from Al Jazeera, and it's a moving story. Calls are growing to replace Nicolas Maduro with Juan Guado. He's the young, 35, charismatic and working class leader of the opposition. Maduro has even blocked humanitarian aid to the starving Venezuelan people. Guado says he'll authorise it. Have you noticed, though, anything odd about the mainstream news media's coverage of the crisis? That the media, with rare exceptions, has hardly mentioned the (laughs) S-word. I am, of course, referring to socialism. Yes, every sensible observer agrees that Latin America's once richest country, sitting atop the world's largest proven oil reserves, 
They all say that Venezuela is an economic basket case. I think annual inflation is about 1.7 million percent. They all say that Venezuela is a humanitarian disaster. They all say that Venezuela is a dictatorship whose demise cannot come soon enough. But socialist? Perish the thought. So says Brett Stevens. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist with the New York Times. And it's a great pleasure to welcome him back to Between the Lines. G'day, Brett. Good day. It's nice to be back on the show. How did socialism kill Venezuela, Brett? Well, uh, starting 20 years ago with the uh, election of Hugo Chavez and what he called the promise of 21st century socialism, uh, the governments of Venezuela, first Chavez and now uh, Maduro, have uh, socialized uh, ever broader segments of the Venezuelan economy, doing so in a manner that was uh, urged uh, on them by people like Naomi Klein, the well-known uh, writer, Noam Chomsky, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, labor leader in Great Britain, who all cheered his emphasis on, uh, as they put it, social spending on the poor, on creating workers' collectives, on nationalizing different sectors of the economy, not turning it into a communist economy by any means, but increasing, vastly increasing the influence of the state and its uh, ability to steer the course of the economy. And uh, that worked as long as oil prices uh, were sky high. But the moment the oil prices uh, collapsed, the emptiness, the weakness of the economy was exposed. So having run massive budget deficits on the assumption that oil would remain $100 a barrel or, or more, they suddenly very quickly found themselves bankrupt uh, when, when those prices declined. So it's a classic story, and we've seen this repeated in one socialized economy after another about the perils of increasing state intervention and the places it can take a country in Venezuela and the most, one of the more extreme countries. And we should stress, Brett, that for much of the 20th century, Venezuela was one of the world's fastest growing and richest nations, right? Well, it was until Chavez took over, mm. by some measures, the richest country in, in South America. That didn't make it a first world country, uh, but it's a far cry from, from the place it is today where there are 3 million refugees, there might be 8 million refugees by the end of the year, uh, and the situation more closely resembles, uh, say, uh, Rwanda or the Central African uh, Republic than it does Brazil or any, any number of ordinarily troubled uh, third world countries. Okay, well, let's deal with some of the um, responses of your critics. Um, Anthony Faolo in the Washington Post this week, he doesn't mention you, but he makes the point... Quote, although many have fled the nation, wealthy Venezuelans still own private companies and high-walled mansions in elite neighbourhoods. They play golf at country clubs and are taxed at a relatively manageable 34%. The occasional McDonald's and Domino's can also be found. Now, that's Anthony Fualo in the Washington Post this week, Brett. That doesn't sound like communist Cuba or North Korea, where foreign investment and foreign ownership are strictly limited, right? Well, on the contrary, it sounds exactly like communist Cuba or North Korea, because in those countries, uh, as in the Soviet Union of old, you could always find uh, enclaves of wealth and of what seemed like first world normality for the privileged few. That is to say, politically well-connected uh, businessmen who uh, did the bidding 
of the regime and in exchange received uh, economic favors. So actually, that's that's quite typical for regimes of this of this sort, where behind gated communities you find the appearance of plenty, uh, and they are surrounded not only by shanty towns but by mass starvation. How would you respond to the argument that? Venezuela is not proper socialism, that it has a mixed economy, that the private sector is a large economy, and it's US sanctions that's always been about regime change. These sanctions amount to a blockage of the country. That's what's destroyed Venezuela. How would you respond to that argument? Well, I mean, it's one that we've heard before. I remember when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, listening to uh, formerly convinced uh, Soviet uh, or fellow travelers of the Soviet Union suddenly telling us that the problem with the Soviet Union wasn't that it was communist, that it never really, really uh, tried communism. I mean, as for the argument that sanctions are to blame, the fact is that the Venezuelan economy started deteriorating very sharply long before sanctions were imposed. It started becoming a dictatorship long before sanctions were imposed. The reason there are sanctions is that you have an outlaw regime that derives much of its revenue from uh, from trafficking in, in cocaine and other, other narcotics. That's why the sanctions are in place as a consequence of its behavior. It's not the cause of its predicament now. Now, the Trump administration is leading other Democratic allies, most notably Canada, all across Europe, most Latin American governments. The Trump administration is leading these countries in a campaign to to um, influence change in Venezuela. The critics, though, will say, and this is in both Venezuela and abroad, they say that the world should leave Venezuelans alone to sort out their own differences. And they support Maduro's view that Guaido's claim to the presidency is really a coup. And their argument is that, you know, Washington immediately recognised Guaido's claim to the presidency. That amounts to a coup. Your response? Well, I mean, it's farcical on a number of levels. You had, by all accounts, uh, an election that was not fair and free, and according to the Venezuelan constitution itself, that means that genuine democratic power falls to the National Assembly and its leader, who is Juan, Juan Guaido. That's, that is the basis of his claim. The suggestion that uh, it's a coup is, is utterly perverse in the face of a dictator who has stolen an election while he's starving his people to death. So it's, it's a bizarre suggestion. Just one one more point. If you had a neighbor who you happened to know was sexually abusing one of his children, would you say the right course is to say, that's his house, it's none of my business? That would be a, a perverse and a morally disturbing uh, position to take. The reason that the rest of the world is agitated is that you have a humanitarian crisis in Venezuela that is unmatched in the Western Hemisphere, and you would have to look for some of the worst examples out of Africa to come to any sort of, of parallel. That's right, and I think it's fair to say there was a survey cited by uh, the Financial Times. It said that one-third of Venezuelans actually support external military intervention, but could U.S. military intervention be cited as evidence that Washington shares Moscow's belief in great power sphere of influence? Well, look, I hope it doesn't come to military intervention, but the analogy is misplaced because if there is any intervention, ideally Venezuelans will simply dispatch this this regime they live under or do so at most with the diplomatic and economic aid of their neighbors. But if, say, it were to come to, to U.S. military intervention, I still think that's far-fetched. It's very different to rescue a country from starvation and a dictatorial regime than, say, what Russia is doing 
in Ukraine, which is um, simply seizing large swatches of land uh, and declaring it Russian territory. So the suggestion is simply completely uh, ill-conceived. If you just tuned in, you're on RN. I'm Tom Switzer and my guest is Brett Stevens. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist with the New York Times. And we're talking about the crisis in socialist Venezuela. Brett, you've mentioned uh, Hugo Chavez, the uh, pre- president of Venezuela from 99 to 2013. Uh, he championed 21st century socialism. Uh, According to Jeremy Corbyn, the British Labor leader, quote, Chavez showed us there is a different and a better way of doing things. It's called socialism. It's called social justice. And it's something that Venezuela has made a big step towards. In your New York Times column, Brett, you mentioned uh, Noam Chomsky, Naomi Klein. Why do you think they overlooked uh, this regime's darker sides? Well, I mean, I think in, in, in the three cases that you mentioned, you have people who I mean, take Corbyn. I don't think Corbyn has has uh, alighted on a, an anti-American despot whom he he does not like. So there is a there's a certain kind of proclivity. The same is largely true of Noam Chomsky. So they were willing to overlook the human rights abuses of the Chavez regime, much in the way, by the way, that a previous generation of left-wing intellectuals was prepared to overlook the uh, the Gulag Archipelago in the Soviet Union or the uh, depredations of the Cultural Revolution uh, in, in Maoist China. So this is, in fact, a very old story with Western intellectuals who are, for a variety of reasons, attracted to totalitarian regimes and are prepared to close their eyes to the clear evidence of uh, what the real effects of their policies are. It is fellow traveling with, with tyrants. Yeah, and meanwhile, given the failure of socialism, that's clearly self-evident here, as you point out, isn't it ironic that so many American Democrats, most notably Bernie Sanders, but there are others, such as this newly elected congresswoman from New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they want socialism for the US, right? Well, look, let, let's be clear. When they speak of socialism, what they really have in mind is something like what uh, social scientists might call social democracy, which is the model that obtains in the Scandinavian economies. It's what, what you and I would call mixed economies with a slightly larger uh, role for the state than, than the one that you have in the United States and certainly in Australia. But the central point and what I think worries me is that the use of this word socialism really sort of neglects the real problem with the theory, which is that as soon as you start giving um, the economy or larger larger parts of the economy to politicians to control, the opportunities for corruption, for nepotism, for mismanagement, uh, and for loss-making uh, increase exponentially. And that's the core problem of socialism, whether it's done on a Swedish model, which ultimately led to an economic crisis in the 80s, or on the much more extreme Venezuelan model, which has led to the, to the desperation you see now. Now, you're a Trump critic, a never-Trumper, but do you think the Democrats, by embracing, if it's not socialism, they're certainly advocating policies that include government control of ever-larger chunks of the private US economy, do you think then that Democrats are creating an electoral opportunity here for the president in 2020? Oh, absolutely. And you heard uh, Donald Trump at his State of the Union address seize on that very point, which is that he used the word socialism. He said that it, uh, it was anathema to everything that America stands for, that we are people, as I think he put it, born free. And that is going to be a central point on which the election 
uh, is going to be argued. But then again, to be fair, uh, many polls show that millennials, these are people born in the early 1980s, uh, right through to the late 1990s, they prefer socialism to capitalism, Brett. Well, I would only urge them to go on uh, their uh, gap years uh, and spend some time in any uh, highly socialized economy. Brett, as always, it's great to have you on RN. Thank you for for listening to me uh, way down there. That was Brett Stevens, a Pulitzer Prize winner columnist with The New York Times. Well, that's it for this week's show. And remember, if you'd like to hear the episode again or any others since the show began in 2014, abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines or you can listen to the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can even subscribe and never miss an episode. (laughs) I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.